So we've been doing this podcast for a while. What is this? Season four of the podcast? So three and a half years. Yeah. And frequently people will reach out to us and ask, mm -hmm. where can they get a t-shirt? Yep. Where's the merch? Um, how can they, how can they wear their support of the podcast on their sleeve? And uh, we've always had to say, no, we don't have anything like that. And so finally we are, we are able to unveil this shop. I invite everyone to go to cheaptalk.shop. Comes with a fresh new URL, cheaptalk.shop. Cheaptalk.shop. To check out the, the items that we have. Um, if you want to purchase this stuff to, to wear ironically or just to show your support. Oh my goodness. Oh my good. Oh, balloon corner. Oh man. <laughs> my favorite thing about podcast merchandise is the kind of in joke that's there, right? That you're part of this smaller community and you have some obscure thing on your, on your t-shirt and maybe you get an up nod from someone who also is part of that that uh, smaller podcast community. This is a really small podcast community. <laughs> and so the the items are maybe even more obscure than that. But for those who want to show your support of the show or have some pleasantly obscure gifts to give uh, for the holidays to the IR aficionado in your life or someone who ought to be listening to the podcast, this is out there for you. We have a variety of items. Let me just kind of talk through some of what we got. Um, and again, I'll invite everyone to go to cheaptalk.shop to check it out. Uh, we have some t-shirts. We have a shirt featuring uh, AI-generated depiction of uh, Marcus, you and I recording. Love it. Um, not sure it's true to life, but it's what the AI thought when uh, when I gave it a very simple prompt of two professors recording a podcast. Look at all the colors it's available in. Holy smokes. Uh, we have a t-shirt with just the Cheap Talk wordmark. Oh, yeah. I love that. We have a countries or people shirt, which is a reference to your philosophy of anthropomorphized countries. Otherwise known as a person? Countries or people, too. Right. We have a uh, shirt featuring a AI-generated Blackberry with the Cheap Talk wordmark for those who uh, want to show their support of the now-defunct Canadian company that you love so much. Uh, we have a hoodie with a depiction of a balloon in a corner, labeled Balloon Corner. Balloon Corner. I mean, th this is only for the hardcore fan. Like, this is like the inside baseball. I love it. I love it. A pleasantly obscure reference to a segment on the show that we uh, used, to, used to have pretty frequently talking about the various Chinese spy balloons flying over America. Somebody out there, somebody out there has listened to every episode and will really get the inside jokes of all of these garments. And it's a throwback to a time when that was the height of the crisis that the world was in, right? Was a was a balloon and it's flying in the stratosphere over over the United States. Uh those were the days. We also have a few smaller items. We have a Cheap Talk logo mug in two sizes. Ooh, two sizes of mugs. I like a I like a nice 15 ounce mug. We have Cheap Talk AirPods and AirPods Pro, AirPods Pro cases, and then we have a sticker sheet if you have some space on the back of your laptop and you want a Cheap Talk sticker on there. So all of that is available at cheaptalk.shop, and I invite everyone to go check it out as you think about your holiday shopping needs. Okay. Cheap Talk. Cheaptalk.shop. Not bad. Always, always a good gift for the holidays, Marcus, are the books that you and I have authored. So your book, Face-to-Face -face Diplomacy. 
um, available at Amazon and other fine book retailers, along with my book, Signing Away the Bomb. Check them out wherever fine books are sold. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus. What's going on, Jeff? I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. I had a very nice Thanksgiving. How about you? My mayonnaise slathered bird turned out to be excellent. So once again, the Kenji method did not disappoint. I did not Sasquatch the turkey. I didn't do any any of the things you recommended last time. But nevertheless, uh, my turkey ended up being quite delicious. And, you know, it's it's just amazing how you can start with something that's just so disgusting, like raw mayonnaise on raw turkey. And the, it's dripping everywhere in your, in your kitchen and everything. But then you put it in the oven and like two and a half hours, three hours later, you have this delicious, moist, uh, succulent, just crispy skin turkey. It was great. Great. I'm glad it worked yeah. out for you. I cooked no turkey, but I did make three cakes and a skillet cookie. Oh, I like skillet cookies. Uh, so I, was, I was on dessert duty. Uh, for for this one, and I did I Palmer House rolls for the first time, which came out. Oh, very fun. nice! Yeah. You made those Parker, yourself. Parker House, Parker House rolls. Parker House, Palmer House is the the Chicago. That's right. Yeah, the, the hotel in Chicago. Yes, Parker House <laughs> rolls. Um, it came out great. Yeah, I mean, it's the first time I ever done that. Uh, so, I was and correct me if I'm wrong. Did you not also have a brisket? Did you do a little barbecue? I one? didn't do the mains, but my my brother in law Michael, okay, cooked in a smoker. The brisket mm -hmm. and the turkey, and they both came out amazing. Did a great job. I think we've talked about this before, but the problem I have with smokers is that it, it creates meat that is kind of smoky in their, its taste. And I like a little bit of smoke, but oftentimes a smoker, it's like it's a lot of smoke. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was really tender, and I mean, it didn't it didn't taste of smoke. It was just really well done. But he he did a wet brine with all kinds of herbs and stuff. So nice. it was uh, it was a whole it was a production, but it it came out great. Yeah. The thing about Thanksgiving, Marcus, is that the true holiday, the true American holiday, is, of course, the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, mm. when we buy stuff. And, you know, there's no, nothing more American than settling in after a day of turkey and, and family to just, like, buy everything you possibly can. Maybe fight off some people in an aisle of Walmart to get a big TV. So um, did, you, did you buy a lot of stuff on Black Friday this year? No, no, I didn't. And frankly, I prefer Cyber Monday. <laughs> Cyber Monday. <laughs> so if those not familiar with the origins of Cyber Monday, Cyber Monday is from a time when people didn't have access to the Internet at home. And so they would go online shopping on Monday when they got to work where they had Internet. And so like the whole idea of Cyber Monday is so ridiculous now, but whatever. It's all like it's a whole month of Black Friday. Well, it also, I mean, Good Friday, Good Friday now with these these establishments, it starts like a week before Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's, it's, still, it's still going on now. I mean, day before Christmas. So. Exactly. Yeah. It's Christmas Eve is Good Friday's over. So uh, did you buy a lot of stuff on Cyber Monday? No, I bought absolutely nothing. I wish I could say the same, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about making several purchases and then I just never, never acted upon it. Cyber Monday is like my it's like my Super Bowl. You know, I like hunker down. I got like a control center down here. I got prices <laughs> coming through in the one monitor. I got, uh, you know, the cashback sites in the other monitor. Just, you know, trying to make it work. Because when you're on a professor's salary, you know, That's true. there are only so many big screen TVs you can purchase. So <laughs> you have to make your dollars stretch. You have to, yeah, you know? you have to stretch the dollar a little bit. 
Uh, Marcus, a lot of stuff going on in the world. Let's let's get into it. I hear something's going on in the chess world. Why don't you bring us up to date on that? Oh, buddy. Uh, you know I love a good chess scandal. Uh, and we, we have – it seems like there's chess scandals kind of like every couple months these days. Um, this this one's kind of interesting, and, and it touches on a couple of sort of topics that we've discussed in this uh, pod before, like the nature of ELO, uh, statistics, and things like that. So I just want to briefly – I know not everybody's into chess, but I just want to briefly kind of uh, give the, the, the sort of contours of what's happening here. Basically, there's a, a grandmaster by the name of Hikaru Nakamura – who is an incredibly good uh, chess player. He's a U.S. world champion, um, really strong grandmaster, and he kind of excels at online chess, and specifically the the so-called blitz format. And the the blitz format is you have three minutes, both sides have three minutes, um, and so the games are like really quick, and there's no, what they talk about is increment. So you just have three minutes, and there's no sort of additional time that you get for making moves. Once the three minutes is up, you're done. If If you are out of time before the opponent, you lose the game. And Hikaru Nakamura has just developed like an incredible talent for this particular kind of time format. Uh, and in online games, he is incredibly uh, competitive. And in fact, on chess.com, he is often, or usually I would say, the highest rated player in three-minute chess. And when we talk about what rating means, we're talking about the ELO system. The ELO system is basically a, a mechanism, a statistic that is used to determine your relative strength. And the idea is that the higher ELO you are, uh, the better player you are. So if you're a 1,000 ELO player, you will, on average, beat somebody who's 900 ELO uh, more often than not. If you play somebody who's an 1,100 ELO player, you are more often than not going to lose. And so it kind of gives you the predicted you know, probability of, of a win or a loss. And obviously, the, the higher the, the sort of variance or the, the delta between your ELO and the person you're playing uh, is going to determine how likely it is that you, you win a game. So it's basically a way of, of ranking players and providing a little bit of a, a sort of prediction about how likely it is that you're going to win that game based on your, your relative strength. So Hikari was incredibly, um, as I said, you know, good at these, this three-minute uh, online chess. And Vladimir Kramnik, who is a uh, Russian player, former world champion, he uh, was incredibly uh, successful in chess himself. Uh, a little bit older than Hikari, obviously, but he goes back and he's, he's you know sort of one of the people that beat Karsparov. Really good player, a really good kind of legacy in chess. Came out last week with uh, essentially a tweet that was kind of aimed at Hikari, although he didn't name him by name. And in that tweet, he said, I have some statistics that I want to present to you. And what he was, what he said is, I have noticed that there's a player who has 45 and a half wins out of 46 games in consecutive games in three minutes blitz. And so what he's basically saying is, Hikaru Nakamura, uh, during a 45 or 46 game stretch, won 45 and a half of those games, meaning in one of the games he had a draw and he won the other uh, 45. And Kramnik, I guess, did some statistics and some, you know, modeling or whatever and said that this basically means that given the quality of the opponents that he played over those 46 games, which was on average 2950, this would mean that Hikaru's expected ELO would be something like 3600, which is totally unheard of, right? So so Hikaru normally has like a 3100, 3200, 3600 plus would be sort of like outrageous and nobody has ever done that unless you're a computer engine. And so what Kramnik is basically 
not alleging, but sort of suggesting, is that this is highly irregular. Uh, it's an incredibly low probability that this would happen over the course of uh, 46 games, and kind of insinuating that maybe Hikaru is cheating, or has, has been cheating in the, in the past. Now, as we've talked about, in online chess, cheating is actually quite easy. Like, you can, you can do it very easily. You can have a phone or something else uh, to the side. You can have maybe somebody, like, talking to you or whatever. Kakaru streams all of his games, or nearly all of his games, uh, and you, while you can't see like every computer monitor that he has in front of him, he does basically have a shot of him looking at the computer screen, and so I think it would be difficult for him to be cheating under those circumstances, except for the fact that Hikaru always famously wears headphones. And so some people came out after the Kramnik kind of non-allegation allegation and said, you know what? I've often been, you know, sort of you know skeptical of, of Hikaru. The fact that he wears headphones all the time, we don't know what's going on in those headphones. Maybe somebody is telling him what moves to make. Maybe something else is going on. It just seems a, a little fishy. And, you know, a couple players kind of came out and defended Hikaru. A couple players were like, I don't know, like there's something fishy going on here. But the basic idea is that Kramnik was saying, statistically, it's just incredibly improbable that uh, Hikaru would be able to score, you know, such such good statistics or, or have such good success against such good players. If he was doing this against 1,000 ELO players or 1,200 ELO players or even 2,000 level players, no one would think anything of it. I mean, I could beat... You know, people that are 300 ELO probably 50 times in a row. But the idea that I could beat somebody who was, like, so close to me in ELO for 45 or 46 games in a row struck Kramnik as, as um, kind of unlikely. Do, do you think that the Blitz format, because you only have three minutes to, like, complete your whole game, makes it, makes it harder to cheat? It seems like it would make it harder to cheat. Because you can't take the time to consult, like, who is the person who's reading something in his, in his headphones? You know? Right. So this is this is kind of one of the, the the interesting things about this discussion is it seems like for most people, three minutes is kind of like that threshold where anything under and cheating becomes very difficult. Right. So if you're playing a 30 second game or a one minute game, kind of hard to know like how you could cheat unless you had like on your computer, a program overlaying chess.com, yeah, yeah, which was telling you what to do. But because he streams, he can't do that because we can see his his browser. We know that he's not doing that. At anything over three minutes, like a five-minute game, or if even a three-minute game with increment, meaning you're getting like one or two seconds extra per move that you make, you might say, okay, that's enough time where I could like maybe have a phone or an iPad, or maybe like my my you know partner is off to the side watching what's going on, and they're on the computer and like whispering in my ear what to do. You can kind of see it if you're above three minutes. But three minutes itself is, I think you're right, kind of like this liminal zone where maybe if he was really good, or actually more accurately, the, the alleged partner or whoever that's doing the cheating for him, if they're really good, maybe, just maybe, you could see this actually kind of working. The problem is, if you actually watch any of his chess, a lot of the games come down to, like, within the last 10 seconds, they're making, you know, sometimes 20, 25 moves, like, almost immediately. They're pre-moving, and they're doing all kinds of things very quickly, because they're playing very, you know, he's playing very strong players who kind of anticipate what the next move is going to be. And so the, the likelihood that somebody could, like, tell him what move to make in a time scramble where you have, you know, two and a half seconds left, that seems highly unlikely. But I think you're hitting on exactly kind of the right the right question, which is three minutes is kind of like, it seems like it's too fast to be able to cheat, but it's like it is long enough that you might be able to do something. And, and what I should also say is... In these games with these high-level grandmasters, it's not like they need to be told what move to make every single move. 
Uh, we're talking about a level of chess where, like, if you cheat once during the game or twice during the game, that's going to give you an edge that will allow you to win the game. And so you don't necessarily have to be feeding, you know, 100 different moves over the course of a three-minute game. If in a critical position you get a little hint from the, the chess engine, you that might be enough to, to win the game. So Kramnik comes out with these statistics, and then everybody's sort of doing their own analysis. You had these these data science PhD, PhDs jumping in. Uh, you had all of these people, you know, sort of like looking at the at the data. Hikar himself came out and said, "This is absolutely absurd." Kramnik has lost it. He's kind of you know he's lost his mind. I have I obviously am not cheating. Like this is a total joke. I stream every single game uh, that I that I play. And Chess.com just today, a few hours ago, uh, came out with a, a sort of like initial report, and they said that in their own analysis where they have used their fair play system, which is like their algorithm, which they use to sort of automatically detect cheating. And then they have like a super duper version of that that they use for like high level GM games. They put all of his games uh, during these so-called streaks where he was cheating through the system and found that our, as they say, our team has done the math in various simulations of streaks for a player like Hikaru who has played more than 50,000 games. And we found that not only is a 45 game winning streak possible, it is in fact likely given the number of games played. We've confirmed that with external statisticians, including a professor of statistics at a top ten university. Was that was that a William and Mary? Do you think I, they don't? They didn't say. I'm sure it was. You know, clearly we have good data science programs. Everybody knows. Soon to be a new school. Oh, yeah, yeah it's excellent. Great. Uh, uh, War Chamber Vladimir In our opinion, his accusations lack statistical merit. I, the reason I'm bringing this up, Jeff, is I think this is actually kind of interesting from a from a you know sort of statistical perspective, but also like what the statistics kind of. Don't might might be a little bit misleading, right? So if you look at something like forty five point five wins out of forty six, I think any reasonable person might think to themselves, that does seem kind of fishy. Like, how could any human being beat such high level opponents? He's not beating up on you know me. He's beating up on other like super GMs who like know what they're doing. But one of the things I think that that some chess players have pointed out is that when you're playing Hikaru Nakamura, when you're playing the best player at this, you know, three minute blitz format in the world, the statistics kind of like don't matter. Like what your ELO is kind of becomes irrelevant because number one, you know, you're playing this person and you get nervous. You know, you know that you're like in a position, even if you're possibly winning, you start to realize that you're winning and you freak out and you lose. You realize that like, okay, I'm, I got three seconds left. I know that this guy's going to make all these moves. And so I, I radically have to move my, my, you know, pieces all around the board just to kind of stay alive. There's so many sort of qualitative things that happen because you're playing Hikaru Nakamura that the statistics aren't capturing. And I think it, it sort of, you know, illustrates this idea that it's 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 a low probability event, sure. But when you're the best player in the world or when you're the best player in this format, a low probability probability event actually doesn't become that low probability because you're the best. And so therefore, you know, 45, 45, six game winning streak is actually not that not that crazy to, to think of. And that's what chess.com is basically saying. When you're the best player in the world. And you look at 50,000 games, you're going to have really long streaks. I'm sure Hikaru has had streaks where he's lost several games in a row. Probably not many. His, losing, his biggest losing streak is probably like three or four games. But you can probably find some of those as well. So Kramnik kind of pointing out, you know, one, one long streak and saying this is highly uh, improbable. Maybe to most people it's improbable. I think anybody that plays chess and knows like the strength of, of Nakamura, they'll say, actually, I could, I could kind of see it. And Chess.com came out today and basically said that's, that's right. You want to do a quick panda check-in? <laughs> we're, we're transitioning between, you know, deeply loved topics on this podcast. I love it. You know, as you know, this is a panda-focused podcast. And um, 
Pandemonium. Week, pandemonium. And as we discussed last time and the time before, and maybe even the time before that, the pandas are going back to China and the U.S. had its pandas revoked from the National Zoo in D.C. And the news today, there's an article in the New York Times, I will put a, a link in the show notes, that the Edinburgh Zoo, Edinburgh Zoo uh, in Scotland. And, and in, sorry, it's Ed, Edinburgh. Edinburgh? Edinburgh. Did I get that right? Edinburgh? Probably not, but that's how I say it. Yeah. Edinburgh? Edinburgh. Edinburgh, Edinburgh. Zoo. Ed- Edinburgh? <laughs> <laughs> this is great content, man. And we we don't sell a thousand t-shirts after this, then I don't know. We're look, we're big we're no the thing is we're we're big in the UK, so I want to make sure we're not offending any of our uh Scottish listeners. Edinburgh. So the pandas that were in Scotland have been recalled. By the by, the Chinese government, it's it's time for them to return home, and we have yet another article that is talking about this in the context of China's relationship with this country, Scotland, contrasted with quotes in the same article by people who actually know about pandas, saying, "No, it's 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 panda time. It's time for the pandas to go back. This is what happens." But we cannot resist this framing of these stories as a geopolitical battle between China and Scotland for the, I, I don't, I don't even understand. I think, I think the fact that this is happening in Scotland is some evidence that this is not related to declining U S China relations. Right. Uh, say more like why, why? So, I mean, so the big question that we, China doesn't have great relations with, with Scotland either. I mean, right. But like, this is, <laughs> They're just, they're just recalling the pandas. If I, I don't even, I, I think that's I a bit of a stretch. Here, let me let me tell you what I think is going on here. Yeah, please. I I think the the zoology world made a made a mistake here. I think what should have happened. See, you can't you can't have the pandas be like we're going home now or we're being we're taken back to China, and then the zoologists come out and say, oh no no no, this was the plan all along, and this is the panda time, etc. The zoologists need to be publishing articles in New York Times like two years ago, saying, hey everybody. Get ready. Just want to let you know. Prepare yourself mentally. It's panda time in two years, and the pandas need to go back to China for their well-being. If we had evidence of that ahead of time, I think this would be a whole different story. The problem is it's all this like post hoc analysis being like, oh, no, 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 no. This is all about the pandas. Well, if that if that was the case, we would have known this beforehand, right? So, so publish the articles before the thing happens. That way we have evidence that it's actually about the pandas and not about the declining relationship. The pandas arrived in Scotland in December 2011 as part of a 10-year arrangement between the Scottish charity that runs the zoo and China Wildlife Conservation Association. During the pandemic, it was decided they could keep the pandas for an extra two years because it was difficult to make all these arrangements during the pandemic. That, that's it. This was always the plan. And you, you want the, the person running the panda program at the zoo in Scotland to write an op-ed in the in the New York Times saying, "Get ready, Scottish visitors to the zoo." Yeah, this, that's insane. So I, I think I'm I'm using this data point as anecdotal evidence that this is not all about the U.S.-China relationship. It may be that this China is making these decisions more broadly against any country that is annoying it, but I don't know what Scotland has done in particular recently to annoy China. 
I mean, maybe there's something. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I got to say, I'm not following the Scottish news particularly closely. But still, I mean, this doesn't seem like, um, yeah, it, uh, the, the idea of putting everything in this framing of a geopolitical fight to the death between China and the United States and the, the new Cold War and the battle of the great powers and all this. I, I don't know. I mean, is Scotland now a pawn to this in this fight to use a chess analogy? I don't know. Uh, I'm going to have to push back on you a little bit. We'll post a story to the show notes by the BBC that I, I saw just uh, a few days ago. Angus Robertson criticized by SNP colleague over China trip, right? So in other words, in Scotland, it still seems to be the case that if you travel to China, let's say, uh, for a visit, you, you're looked at by at least some policymakers as doing something negative, doing something bad. I would imagine in China... If I if I see this happening, I, I don't like that. This is basically you know saying that that you know traveling to China uh, you're doing something wrong and this is a this is a bad thing. So if I'm China, I don't like that. And so this happens you know a week ago, and now we have the panda exit uh, a few days ago. I, I, I'm not saying that you're wrong, but I do think that there is very you know sort of like tangible things you can point to to show that the Scottish China relationship. Maybe not as bad as the U.S.-China relationship, but certainly things are happening there which which aren't good. And if if you are sort of the the one that link, thinks about this from a diplomatic perspective, and China might be trying to send a signal, I think there's ample evidence that you could point to most likely uh, in Scottish politics to show that rhetoric towards China uh, is actually quite bad, and China might be responding to that. So again, I, I don't think you're wrong necessarily, Jeff, but I do think there's probably more there than you're you're giving credit to. I'm not an apologist for China in the in this case. I think they should be letting the pandas go where to to see all the people, right? I mean, the pandas are these wonderful ambassadors to the world, but and they're adorable as we've established. But what I want to see for all the people who are emailing me telling me that I'm wrong about this China thing, China panda thing, what I want you to show me is a place with particularly good relations with China that got to keep their pandas longer than everybody else. That that's what I want you to show me. You can't show me that because it doesn't exist. But it, I'm happy to see that evidence if others wanna wanna bring it forward. All right, Marcus, what's with this video game thing? You wanna? <laughs> I don't know what this is, so you're gonna have to. So Jeff, I was reading. Um, not to change the subject off pandas, because I know we're we're loath to do that. But I just wanted to to bring up another topic that I think our listeners might be kind of interested in, uh, and that was this notion that I, I saw in a paper uh, the other day about uh, essentially video game diplomacy. And when I say video game diplomacy, it's not exactly that, but the the basic idea is something like by playing multiplayer transnational or international uh, video games in a sort of like online, you know, world or with, you know, avatars, or maybe it's just like some type of, of game that doesn't have avatars, whatever, you are uh, basically contributing to or in a way sort of practicing diplomacy in a sort of people-to-people sense. And and what the, the, the authors of the article were talking about is that by engaging online through these interactions that are occurring, you know, internationally in these these you know game sort of environments, you are building social capital, right? Social capital being the idea of like connections between people that help to foster trust and understanding, empathy, reciprocity, and it's an old idea that goes way back uh, to like sort of early you know political philosophers about the importance of kind of civic engagement. Um, seeing one another, like your neighbor, and like getting a better understanding of who they are because you interact with them, um, you know, on a routine basis. The argument in this paper was was about 
kind of the idea of building some of that social capital, not by seeing somebody in person or interacting with them, you know, physically, but rather doing through doing so through a multiplayer uh, online environment. And it got me thinking um, about, you know, sort of the logic behind this and, and what it, it might suggest about international relations. The the most sort of obvious connection that I, it drew in my mind was Robert Putnam's um, idea of Bowling Alone, this book that he wrote back, I think, in the 1980s or 1970s. And the idea of that book was essentially that American um, sort of civic society had undergone significant changes post-World War II, you know, through the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and Putnam was talking about a sort of a lack of social capital because – Americans stopped doing things like, you know, engaging in um, religious institutions in person, engaging in things like bowling clubs. And so the idea of bowling alone is like I go to the, the bowling alley, and I bowl and I play my game, but I don't do so with other people because I'm not in a club format anymore. I'm just doing the, it on my own. And Putnam basically makes the argument that this has been detrimental to American, you know, sort of like social social life, but also political life, because we just simply don't see each other, you know, enough. We don't have the physical interactions with one another, and therefore we don't have those connections, and therefore we don't have those these ties, and we don't have the sort of understanding and trust that, you know, having these interactions uh, might might lead to. And I've been thinking about that recently um, with respect to the political polarization of the United States and also sort of the role in the Internet. And it does seem to me that often, you know, what, what, when you sort of think about America at the moment, you think about, or at least I do, you know, people in their homes kind of like on their computers, like fighting with random strangers on the Internet about politics or about, you know, sports or whatever, without the sort of actual engagement, without the actual like interaction that people like Putnam and, and others would say is actually quite beneficial uh, for society. So the argument in this paper is like, well, if if instead of fighting online and sort of talking about politics and sort of, you know, just just sort of being like, I don't like you and I think your positions are bad or whatever, if we can use the Internet for more uh, sort of like playful purposes or we can do interaction in a low risk environment where we're not talking about politics, but rather focus on something else, that might be one sort of like minor, but still potentially important way of building connections between people. And if you can do that domestically, that's great. But if you can do that internationally, you might actually be, you know, sort of building social capital capital across uh, across borders and across boundaries and things like that. So I don't know if, if uh, this is an idea that's going to go anywhere. It's certainly like a, a nice, you know, kind of sounding one, video game diplomacy. And I kind of like the idea behind it. But I do think there is something to this this notion of, when you have a lack of, of physical kind of face to face interaction with your neighbors, um, with other people in your community and your in your society, you do get, I think, this sort of degradation of of um, sort of like understanding and taking, you know, people, giving people the benefit of the doubt and understanding others as being part of your community and your in group and so forth. And anything that we can do to kind of build up social capital, it seems to me, is actually a good thing. So you might be skeptical that video games are the way to do that, but it seems like you know one potential route. Uh, to trying to to replace something that we've lost over time, uh, we're taking this podcast in a different direction. What what it, this is about polarization within America? Is that what you're talking about? Are you talking about international understanding between between different cultures? Yeah, both really, right? Uh, so, I mean, this study, of course, doesn't say anything about. I'll put a link in the show notes. Doesn't say anything about international at all because you don't necessarily know where the people you're playing with are from. And in fact, this the particular game that they used to test this, which is called Sky, Children of the Light, doesn't really revolve around detailed chats. 
you can chat with other players if you like go through jump through some hoops but you can also work together with other players without chatting with them and so there's a nonverbal communication aspect to it that that's kind of interesting there's a whole body of of psychology literature about kind of in-group out-group dynamics and one way that human beings uh in the world we live in draw those in-groups and out-groups is around national boundaries and sometimes we see people from other countries as the out-group and people from our own country as the in-group or people from our university as the in-group and people from that other university down the road as the out-group. And so it's not clear if you add something like borders to this game or mark which people are from different places somehow in the game that you wouldn't have those similar dynamics that cause trust to be broken. So when you talk about bowling alone and Putnam and social bonds within your community, it really is within your community that Putnam wants to emphasize that people are kind of going from work to home and don't have these interactions and don't form these bonds within their community, within their in-group. And so our in-group in the international relations world maybe is our country. And so it's not clear to me what this would say about international peace and understanding. Imagine, Jeff, if we created a, a, a large multiplayer online game and we had players from all kinds of different countries. But instead of like the delineation of who you were being like the flag of the country that you come from, you had something else. You had a symbol that said, like, I'm part of the Cheap Talk, you know, nation. Like we're we're all part of the Cheap Talk Nation and everybody joins the Cheap Talk Nation in this game and we work together and fight. Or not fight, that's a bad word, but we, we compete against some other uh, uh, group that's the, the costly signaling nation, okay? What the, the, the bet here, the wager, is that if some of the people in our uh, group, in our, in our Cheap Talk Nation, come from China or come from Russia or come from Iran or come from North Korea, well, North Korea is unlikely, uh, places like that that we you know, sort of associate as, as being sort of against us in our outgroup, but we can foster together through this online multiplayer game uh, an in-group that includes people from China, Russia, Iran, etc. The gamble is that those ties that bind us together might create social capital amongst us such that if I'm in a situation a week from now and I have to ha- and I have an interaction with somebody from China, let's say, I am going to have less prejudice towards that person based on the virtue of the fact that I have the social capital from uh, being derived from this this online game. I agree 100%. It's a little bit far-fetched. I agree with the idea that nationalism and the, the state that you come from, the country that you are in, is a very strong social identity driver, and it's probably the strongest in-group that, that most people have. Um, but I think the idea here is that if you can cultivate a little bit of understanding and social ties between people across those boundaries in these sort of low risk environments. What I like about the video game thing, by the way, is it's it's low risk. I mean, sure, you might be able to type in, in you know, sort of like yellow people and be abusive and things like that. But for the most part, many of these games are sort of, you know, fostered or around fostering uh, sort of cooperation and working together and trying to figure out things, you know, uh, uh, together in a way you have to like strategize and things like that. So they're kind of built, I think, to kind of foster cooperation and not, you know, conflict. And so if you're able to build social capital with people that exist in other countries and create your own in-group in the game, there might be some spillover effects into the into the real world. You don't you don't buy that? No, absolutely. And And there are many attempts to create this in the real world, right? So I, I, I mean, maybe video games is, is the way to do this, but there are plenty of programs that have tried to create new in-groups, create new peer groups of, of people who might 
ordinarily see themselves as different. And that's kind of the fundamental thinking behind many programs in the world, things like Seeds of Peace and and other programs that take people from conflict areas, put them together with those they're supposedly in conflict with, and watch as they form regular human bonds, as one does with people once you get to know them. So uh, I think those kinds of programs and maybe this future multiplayer game that you're envisioning are, are ways to kind of combat our knee-jerk reaction to seeing some other, particularly one that we might find ourselves in conflict with in the in the real geopolitical world. So I think, right. no, definitely like uh, the, anything that can that can bring us closer together is good news. It's not clear to me how we would take this idea and like make it work to solve world peace, but I that's that shouldn't stop us from trying. Right, and what I like about this too is it's a it's a relatively low cost intervention. Yeah. You know, so if you're able to figure out. You know, if, if you have some smart people kind of like creating a game that facilitates this type of cooperation and coordination and stuff like that, um, and you do it in a way that's clever and people want to play it, and you're sort of subtly manipulating things and so that you're developing this in-group. I mean, I would imagine if you get some sort of psychology folks and video game, you know, you know, programmers in the room together, they might be able to, to come up with a creative way of, of doing this. You're able to create an environment that's low cost, low risk, um, and and create the interaction that, that as you're talking about, might actually... Um, have some some fruitful benefits. One of the stories that came out in the New York Times just uh, a day or two ago that I shared with my students is the decline in physical um, exchanges among students, particularly study abroad between the United States and China. So yeah. U.S. U.S. students going to China is like an all time low. I think that there was like something like three as a, as of um, last year. I think they counted like three hundred U.S. students in China, in all of China. China's big. The U.S. is big, and there's 300 uh, U.S. students studying in, in China. 300? That's crazy. I think that's right. We, we'll, we'll check this. We'll double-check my uh, my memory of this uh, statistic in, in, the, in the show notes. But I believe it's something like 300. And the, the Chinese students in the United States is also drastically down. You know, And so if, if one of the ideas about sort of fostering international understanding and cooperation is through people-to-people exchange, and study abroad has historically been one of these kind of public diplomacy vehicles that, that people like look to as a way of cultivating understanding and empathy and building trust and reduction of prejudice and all that kind of stuff, it's a really bad sign, it seems to me, that U.S.-China exchanges are at an all-time low. Now, there's a huge sort of elephant in the room, uh, which is COVID-19, and so there was the pandemic, and so one reason might be that we're still kind of rebounding from the, the sort of lows of, of the pandemic. Yeah. But it, it still strikes me this is a relatively low number. Yeah, the, the number from the story is uh, the number of American students in China, meanwhile, plummeted during the pandemic to a mere 350 as of this year. As the of American this year. Embassy has right. said, compared to more than 11,000 in 2019. So what's interesting about that is 11,000 still seems low to me. Like I would I, if, if I were guessing, you know, if you said to me, knowing nothing about like the U.S., you know, China study abroad market, you know, I would have I would have said 30,000, 50,000. It seems to me like 11,000 is already pretty low. 350 is I mean, that's like in the error term. Like that's that's ridiculously that's low. Yeah. yeah, that's really low. Um, and if, if you click on the survey in the in the New York Times uh, uh, story where the State Department kind of collected these statistics, you'll you'll notice that the most frequent you know sort of destination for U.S. students are, are entirely predictable. It's like France, the U.K., Spain, you know, Western Europe, essentially Australia, places like that. But China is not even on the list. They're in the other category. And so you know the most important, arguably sort of geopolitical rivalry uh, at the moment, the, the United States and China. 
And we're seeing, you know, a lack of interaction at basically all levels, including now these sort of people to people exchanges who study abroad. To me, it's a bad sign. So we have pandas disappearing, no panda exchanges, and seemingly now no study abroad exchanges either. On the topic of video games, I'll just there's kind of another angle to to video games and, and international diplomacy that I just thought I'd throw in there. There have been actually been a number of studies looking at video games as a way to help people understand the danger from international security threats, um, and in particular in the nuclear area. So uh, there are a couple of, ga- of games like this. One is a virtual reality experience that kind of try to take you into the world of Hawaii in 2018 during the time when there was that false alarm over missile strikes from North Korea and what that might have been like to be there. And then another is called Nuclear Biscuit, and this is a project out of Princeton uh, that creates a kind of nuclear decision-making scenario in which you are the president and have to decide whether to use nuclear weapons faced with what looks like it might be a strike from Russia, and you have to decide whether it makes sense for you to respond. And there, there's a focus a little bit on like the kinds of information that you would be getting thrown at you and how limited your time you would have to make a decision to retaliate or not to retaliate. And what's interesting about these games is... is that we can kind of use them as a way to understand how human beings deal with decision-making in ways that kind of simulate the real world, which is very hard to do in the real world. So this is helpful in thinking about, you know, what are the factors that help leaders make good decisions under pressure, particularly in the international security arena, which is something that is very difficult for us to study in the real world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the trouble with any of these technologies, uh, or not even the technologies themselves, but like we, you know, one of the problems that that social scientists have when they ask people about the use of nuclear weapons, for example, in like survey experiments, where you, you know, say, would you advocate, you know, the use of nuclear weapons under the following conditions and things like that. The criticism has always been it's it's very difficult to have the respondent in these types of situations put themselves in the shoes of an actual decision maker when th- your time is constrained. And you alone kind of have the responsibility of making sure the world doesn't blow up. You know, all that kind of stuff becomes, you know, highly chaotic and, and stressful. And so when you're doing this on a survey, people are like, you're never going to be able to replicate that kind of stress. And so therefore, I'm not trusting that the responses that I'm getting from these these you know, survey respondents are indicative of what real you know decision makers might feel. I think the, the sort of virtual reality... Uh, version of this is like ups the the ante quite a bit, and so it makes it a little bit more sort of realistic. The trouble is, of course, you still know that you're in a virtual reality simulation. It's not like they they like you know take these people and you know make them put them make them unconscious, and then they wake up in like a situation where they don't know what's going on, and then it's 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 like you know you're in a in a world where you have to make a decision like this. That would be a cool study, though. That would be a cool study. We we can't do those anymore, <laughs> unfortunately. People ruined it. But you know, like something like that would would be what you want. So I like the idea of using virtual reality to kind of get at some of these things, but my 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 skepticism is always that it's so hard to kind of replicate the stress. That one inevitably must feel. I mean, put yourself in like JFK shoes during the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, can you imagine like going to sleep during the middle of that? Like you go to sleep on a Tuesday, knowing that you might not wake up the next morning, depending on what Khrushchev or Castro or whoever decides to do. Um, you know, you're in a situation which is incredibly stressful. And whether you have virtual reality or not, it's not clear to me you're ever going to be able to replicate uh, those conditions. So I applaud the effort. I think it's better than what we have. I think it's better than text. I think it's better than, you know, watching something on television. Um, and to be fair, 
a lot of these stimuli can be very scary. Like if you've watched, you know, movies about nuclear war, or watched even like zombie films, like you can get wrapped into them and, and be nervous and start sweating and your heart, you know, your heart rate, it's increases and your blood pressure increases. So I, there's no doubt that you can do things to kind of like increase the stimulus uh, to get people to feel stressed to a certain extent. But you know, it's just, it's so removed from the actual environment that these decision makers are operating under. It's hard for me to say, yes, this is the, this is the magic bullet. This is going to be the thing that shows us what it's really like to be in a nuclear crisis. I think there's just so, the number of individuals in the history of the world that are in those positions is so few. And thankfully, the numbers of, of the scenarios that have, you know, been like this have been so, you know, few in number, you know, it's just going to be very hard, I think, to, to replicate anything close to that. But there's another angle to this that I think is important, and that is a kind of public education angle where people don't really understand what would go into a decision like this or what would be involved in making this decision. If anyone, if people think about this at all, the decision to use nuclear weapons, let's say, or go to war with another country, it's very abstract and it lacks a lot of the detail around what you would actually what the president's actually dealing with in that situation. And so when you expose people to a realistic scenario in virtual reality where you don't know what's going on, you have very limited time to decide, and chances are you're going to make a, a bad decision in one way or the other, and then you take the headset off, suddenly you realize, oh, wow, like this is not, I do not feel comfortable with the way the world is when it comes to nuclear security or international security or any of these other things that we talk about on this podcast, because it, the reality of the decision-making around them is so fraught that people just don't realize how scary the situation really is. And one thing these these programs can do is show people how scary the situation is such that they leave the game and vote differently or advocate differently or give money differently. So understanding that this is a real issue that threatens the future of the world. I, yeah, I agree with that. Like if you, if you want to increase the public's sort of knowledge of just how scary nuclear weapons are and just how complicated uh, the decision-making process about what to do in a nuclear crisis or what to do in it, like the situation we're talking about, the sort of fake missile alert or the mistake missile alert in Hawaii. I think, I think it does serve a valuable purpose. Like I think my criticism of it is like, you can't replicate the conditions under which these decision makers will, um, you know, will, will feel and, and, and operate under. And that's fair enough. But if that's not the aim, if the aim is really to sort of show people like, look, you know, this is incredibly complicated. And if you didn't care about nuclear security before you walked into this uh, video game simulation, like maybe tomorrow you will care. And maybe you will do something to, you know, support the politicians that care about the NPT or whatever it is that you think is important. So I, I agree with that. I think it's like from an educational perspective, more than anything else, this might be a valuable kind of public diplomacy or, you know, uh, international education type of, of uh, system. I'm, I, yeah, I'm fine with that. All right, let's, let's uh, wrap up with a question from a listener. This question is from Simon from Chantilly, Virginia. And Simon asks, what does it mean that President Biden has decided not to attend the climate summit happening soon? And I'm just going to elaborate on Simon's question. You know, there are a few ways to, to think about this. Does it matter that President Biden isn't there? Does it matter for what the summit can accomplish? Is it more a matter of signaling the U.S.? support for whatever the summit is engaged in? Does the fact that Kamala Harris is going in, Simon, in, um, in President Biden's 
instead cushion the blow? I mean, what what do you make of this, Marcus? I think it's fair to say that Biden uh, has a lot on his plate uh, at the moment from an international relations perspective. And, and so when the White House says uh, we would like to have Biden attend, but we have um, wars going on in the Middle East and in Ukraine. There's just a lot happening, and so that's that explains a decision to to skip the summit. I think most sort of reasonable people will look at that and say that seems fine. Like that seems like a legitimate uh, reason to not be doing this. That's that's fair enough. I think the optic optics of it are a little tricky. Um, in some respects, I think there is a view, and this is a controversial view, but I think there is a view that sending the vice president on trips like this, in some ways, kind of highlights the fact that the president isn't going more than not sending anybody at all or sending somebody like the secretary of state who at this juncture is incredibly busy too right. or i should say we have a we have a, an international envoy for climate who right. is a guy named john Kerry, who right. also kind of carries a, a pretty big international profile exactly so and he's going to be there as far as i understand he's going to be there yeah he'll he's going to be there right yeah. so there 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 is something to the idea of when you send the vice president and not the president you're almost drawing more attention to the fact that the president president isn't there i think maybe the 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 sort of criticism of Biden would be reduced a little bit if Kamala Harris didn't go and the the envoy for climate, John Kerry, went instead. I think it's in some ways that would have been strategically, if Biden you know, cares about the sort of optics of this, a better a better way of going. But fundamentally, I don't I don't think it, it really matters. Biden has been on the record as being a, a staunch uh, climate change um, uh, person interested in, in you know climate change and doing things internationally to uh, reduce the effect of climate change. He went to the, the last two COP summits and um, his appearances there were, I think, you know, high profile. And he, 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 at the time, I think we talked about the last one, you know, he, he gave a good speech and he was, you know, I think did an appropriate job there. So I don't think anybody's going to look at this and say, this is a signal that Biden suddenly doesn't care about the climate. Um, I do think that he has a lot going on and that's a perfectly legitimate reason to skip this one. I just worry a little bit about the sending of the vice president and what signal that sends and maybe unintentionally might actually be signaling something that Biden did not intend to signal. Uh, and that could have been mitigated just by sending Kerry himself. What's your take, Jeff? I think it sends a signal um, that, you know, this is not the highest priority of the of the US administration right now. And, you know, that's that's not great if you think that climate change is like the thing most likely to kill all of us. As as I think many people do, that if you if you understand climate as an existential issue for the world, then that ought to be everybody's highest priority all the time. And really, we can't spare Biden for a day to go to this summit. I mean, we can. We absolutely can. Anything that he can do from Washington, he can do in the time before he goes out and makes a quick speech and leaves, right? I mean, the the idea that if he's at which where is this UAE, which is a whole, a whole other thing. But if he's <laughs> if he's at UAE going to this summit, he could still do whatever he is even closer to the action in brokering whatever he's trying to broker um, in the Middle East. So I don't know. I, I think that what. You know, a lot of the stories about this have focused on the domestic political story around it. That is maybe Biden trying to trying to to send a more centrist message uh, around climate and, and energy policy and wanting to emphasize oil production and, and other things in the upcoming election, um, which was made harder by his presence at the at the climate summit. And certainly people have worried about the political response to his decision not to go 
that it has a potential effect on pulling people from the Democratic side of the spectrum and, and making them kind of angry about Biden's commitment to this issue. So I, I don't I don't know. I don't know how true any of that is. I think a, an easier thing to, to look at is what this says for the likelihood of some big breakthrough at the summit, which is already low, of course, at any at any climate summit. The, the idea of coming out of it with a with a big breakthrough is, is pretty low. But the fact that Biden's not going, I think, sends a pretty clear signal that we shouldn't expect some groundbreaking agreement to come out of this summit or even a, a significant agreement to come out of the summit. The fact that President Xi of China will not be there as well and is sending a, a top aide, I think, you know, it just makes it all the more clear that we shouldn't expect much here. And some of the stories around this, you know, I've interviews with John Kerry talking about how, oh, you know, we're going to get an agreement to everyone's going to phase out using fossil fuels or something like that. And I, I think with, without Biden at the summit, I think it, I think if, if such an agreement were in the offing, he'd be much more likely to attend. First of all, Jeff, the idea that a U.S. voter is going to change their vote uh, because Biden did not attend the summit, find that a little, little bit of a stretch. But I, I do see what you're saying, and maybe there's a domestic political angle. I, I'm well, this is not my that. argument, right? I just right, want to sure, be clear. Sure, sure. Like th this is the argument that's coming up in all these stories about Biden's attendance. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really think that's that's uh, fair. The, the and also this idea that like he could just you know pop over to the UAE. I mean, if you're somebody that thinks that you know diplomacy does send something of a costly signal, you have to you have to be consistent and maintain that. Actually, no, like taking you know two to three days out of your you know, presidential life to hop on a plane and go and do this, this summit. Well, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a lot when you're the age that Biden is and you have other things that are going on in the world that, you know, require, you know, your attention. I do think it's, it's fair to make the argument that there are opportunity costs that are, that are at play here. Mark, Mark is it, he's not flying coach with like the guy in the, in the seat in front of him in the fully reclined position. So he can't get his laptop on the tray table. Well, not even, I, I don't even do that. That's not, that's not right. how he flies. He's, he's got an office. He can wander around. He can work on the plane. He can work when he gets there. He'll have a very nice room at a very nice hotel. I don't, I don't think this is, I understand what you're saying. And he is, he is uh, an older gentleman. Um, right. And so maybe travel takes a little bit of a toll, but he ought to be able to continue to work. Um, he recently was in Israel, for example. Mm hmm this is a guy who can pop over to the Middle East. He can make sure. an appearance in Kiev. He's capable of doing it. Okay, but Jeff, here, here's, my, here's my point, right? If we're going to make the argument, as I have in the past, that doing so sends a signal because you're paying a cost to do it, you can't then also make the argument that, oh, it's, it's so easy for him to go to the UAE for a COP28 because it's so costless. No, no, no. I have to be consistent. So I'm going to maintain that getting on a plane and flying halfway around the world for two to three days to attend a summit is is paying cost and that's taking that's opportunity cost it's like literally like costly in terms of like his health and like you know the jet lag and all that there's all kinds of costs that he's paying to do this and so you're you're right that by not doing it he's sending some type of a signal but i can't make the argument that like oh it's just willy-nilly just hop on a plane and and go do something i don't think that's fair i think it's i think it is costly to make these trips if you're the president of the united states well, and as someone who's maintained that these are not particularly costly signals, and so it <laughs> right. doesn't matter that there's all this. So we're, we, at least we're being consistent. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> going to say that, you know, why doesn't he just pop over, give a speech if, and send that signal? That it's well, there's a certain irony, Jeff, and you, you arguing that these things don't matter and then criticizing the guy for not just popping over and then giving a speech. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, I. But the fact I, that I, they don't matter makes it all the worse, right? It's like, it's like he can't even be bothered. 
to can't give be bothered to take two, three days of his of his presidential life. This is a life. much stronger signal than going someplace, right? The fact that he's not going is the signal here. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the one the one piece of this that I do sort of agree with you on, um, I'm not even sure if you made this point, but if, if you did, I'll attribute it to you. If you didn't, I'll, I'll take credit for it. The fact that Xi and Biden last year did have this moment at the COP27 where, like, they were both there. They yeah. shook hands. And, like It was like this big deal. And it was like, you know, sort of like, Oh, okay, like the whole climate change thing is like energized and now the whole world cares and, you know, Biden and Xi are there. Look at this. And like, you know, this is a game changer. And now a year later, neither of them are showing up for the thing. Now, maybe they're trying to signal like the the dissatisfaction they have with the rest of the world for not like doing the things that they thought that we should be doing, you know, that we, we set out to do a year ago. I don't know what it is, but it does seem to be a very drastic change and sort of enthusiasm and momentum from 2022 to 2023 because Xi and Biden aren't going to be there. I, I do agree with that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I, as someone who does think the climate change is a big deal and mm-hmm. that we should be paying attention to it. For me, the, the saddest thing is that I think this suggests we shouldn't expect much. Is that, do you agree with that? Jeff, I think we both agree. We can agree on this. We both think that climate change is an incredibly high priority for every country in the system, or at least it should be, and that doing everything we can at the moment to try to stem the the effects of it needs to be done. I think our disagreement is sort of about what the signal of Biden not attending this particular summit uh, means. My takeaway is I don't think Biden is any less committed to, to climate change than he was a year ago when he went and met, met with Xi. I think the optics are, are something kind of interesting that we could talk about from a signaling perspective, what it, what it might mean. But my overall sense is that if you're, if you're concerned about the U.S.'s commitment towards climate change, I'm not willing to, to concede that anything has really changed. I think this is more about Biden's personal decision making, maybe his health. Maybe he's worried about, you know, the, the sort of things that he has to do with respect to Ukraine and, and the Middle East. And at the moment, the relative priorities are a little bit higher on those things. Uh, but I think Biden is still pretty committed to climate change. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. with that. Let's leave it there, Marcus. Thanks so much for, for joining me today. I don't know about you, Jeff, but I had a great time as always. I also had a great time. I'd, I'd like to invite everyone to check out cheaptalk.shop and take a look at the merchandise we have for sale there. All these items make great holiday presents, along with the books written by Professor Holmes and myself, which um, I would also recommend uh, when you're thinking about your holiday gift giving. Shameless promotion aside, please send us a note at uh, cheaptalkpod at gmail.com with questions or comments or suggestions or just to tell Marcus where he was wrong about something. Or you can leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. Marcus, thank you so much. Jeff, it's been a pleasure. We covered a lot of territory. Uh, I'm I'm glad you survived Thanksgiving, and I look forward to a, a nice holiday season. See you next time. Uh, there was there was boilerplate, right? Oh yeah. Um, Marcus, did you know that the opinions expressed on this podcast are solely our own and do not reflect the policies or positions of of William and Mary? I did know that. Yeah. <laughs> no, what what are we what are we supposed to do? Like legally what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to to say somewhere that like what is it what is the guidance? In cases in which you identify yourself as an employee of William Mary, you must insert a disclaimer right. notice making it clear that any statements are your own opinion.
Okay, but like, how often? Like, do we do that every episode? Do we say, is it like on? Maybe every time we say something. Every time we say something. Yeah. We should have a timer. Every two and a half minutes, it goes off, and then you say, <laughs> "The positions are do not are are my, are my own and not William and Mary's." Yeah, opinions are my own. <laughs>